traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. At that moment, I could not lie, and I told him, 12 years old. Then he said to my son, Vois Dimuti, where is your mother? And I answered, she went to the left. And then he said to my son, run after your mother. After that, I went on walking to the right, and I saw how the boy was running. I wondered to myself, how will he be able to find his mother? After all, there were so many people there. I caught sight of my wife. How did I recognize her? My little girl was wearing a red coat. The red spot was a sign that my wife was there. The red spot was getting smaller and smaller. I walked to the right, and I never saw them again. Rod Sailing's inspiration for tonight's episode came from the trial of Otto Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was a lieutenant colonel in the SS and is often referred to as the architect of the Holocaust. If you look at the Wikipedia page devoted to Eichmann, you'll see a picture of a man in a Nazi uniform, and he's slim, quite average looking, and his eyes don't really betray any great evil in him. This isn't some sneering movie villain, and in early life he worked for his father's mining company in Austria, he was a travelling salesman, so nothing really out of the ordinary, but also nothing amazing either, he was pretty average. But in 1932, after years of reading related material, he joined both the Nazi party and the SS, where his rise seems to have been quite swift because in 1933 he was appointed as head of the department responsible for Jewish affairs, which at that time was putting pressure on Jewish citizens to emigrate. The Second World War broke out in 1939 and in 1941 the policy of the Nazis changed from Jewish emigration to Jewish extermination. So within the space of a decade, this not unpleasant looking man had went from salesman to a man who was reported to have said that he would leap laughing into his grave because the feeling that he had five million people on his conscience would be for him a source of extraordinary satisfaction. Yes? Anything wrong? No, sir. Mr. Schmidt. That's what I've written. Of course, sir. Of course what? I just meant, sir, I just wondered. It's just that... What? You just wondered what? It's just that you remind me of someone. Oh? During the war. Go on. There were... There were SS stationed here. They used to come to the inn very often. I spent the war years on the Russian front. The Panzer Division. Of course. 
despite the name he signs in the hotel register. You've just met Gunther Lutzer, who Sailing had originally named Lieutenant Oberg, and he was coming back to Dachau after 18 years. Now, Rod Sailing did his research and changed it to 17 years. So let's see what judgment Otto Eichmann's Twilight Zone counterpart faces in tonight's episode, Death's Head Revisited. Mr. Schmidt recently arrived in a small Bavarian village which lies eight miles northwest of Munich. A picturesque, delightful little spot, one time known for its scenery, but more recently related to other events having to do with some of the less positive pursuits of man. Human slaughter, torture, misery, and anguish. Mr. Schmidt, as we will soon perceive, has a vested interest in the ruins of a concentration camp. For once, some 17 years ago, his name was Gunter Lutze. He held the rank of a captain in the SS. He was a black uniformed strutting animal whose function in life was to give pain. And like his colleagues of the time, he shared the one affliction most common amongst that breed known as Nazis. He walked the earth without a heart. And now former SS Captain Lutzer will revisit his old haunts, satisfied perhaps that all that is awaiting him in the ruins on the hill is an element of nostalgia. What he does not know, of course, is that a place like Dachau cannot exist only in Bavaria. By its nature, by its very nature, it must be one of the populated areas of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on November 10th, 1961, written by Rod Serling and directed by Don Medford. We saw Don Medford only a few episodes ago when he directed The Mirror, and he has one more episode to go, which is Death Ship. Now, Buck Houghton said of Don Medford in The Twilight Zone Companion, Don is very good with action things, startling things. He has a need for explosion of some sort. I was afraid that Death's Head Revisited was going to get a little talky. There were opportunities for people to appear in a way that would startle you, and there were all sorts of confrontations that I thought could profit by a director whose taste was for violent action. And I think he delivered it. I think he did very well in that. So we'll see if we agree as we go on. So we have a very understandably serious Rod Serling in his opening narration, stepping away from just merely presenting a story for us to consider as some sort of neutral guide. He calls Lutzer an animal, says he walked the earth without a heart. So Serling's point of view is very much on display here, and of course, how could it not be? But what I love in this opening narration and this very much ties into how I like to imagine the Twilight Zone in our world. Sometimes someone will go somewhere where they enter the Twilight Zone, like in Odyssey of Flight 33. Sometimes a place is built in a place where the Twilight Zone overlaps, like the hotel in Nervous Man in a $4 room, or someone interacts with an object that somehow has some Twilight Zone power to it. But here Sailing says, Dachau cannot exist only in this world. By its nature, by its very nature, it must be one of the populated areas of the Twilight Zone. So something so terrible, so horrendous has happened here that it essentially forces this place 
to become part of the Twilight Zone. You'll notice in the prologue when Lutzer checks into the hotel that the lady behind the counter, and we'll see this later on with other characters, is very ashamed of this camp that's sitting up there on the hill. She'd like it to be burned down, so Sailing is very careful to keep the focus and the blame on Lutzer. He's not directly commentating on the German people as a whole, whether they are complicit in the atrocities or not, but he does show a certain amount of shame and guilt on their part. Now, the psychoanalyst Carl Jung wrote an essay in 1945 about this phenomenon in which he said that the German people felt a collective guilt for the atrocities by their fellow countrymen and he kind of introduced that into the intellectual discourse and he said collective guilt was for psychologists a fact and it will be one of the most important tasks of therapy to bring the Germans to recognize this guilt and in fact after the war when the British and the US occupied Germany they kind of promoted this shame and guilt with publicity and posters depicting concentration camps with slogans like these atrocities your fault now this is a whole subject in itself there are reams and reams of books and articles about how much the german people knew about what was going on and how much they didn't and i don't think it's really in the scope of this podcast to to comment on that that's a a very big subject in itself but by now Lutzer has arrived at the camp in the Twilight Zone companion Buck Houghton said CBS had made a pilot for a western and they had built a four-sided frontier fort it was a hundred fifty or two hundred thousand dollar set to pilot this western it was standing out on lot three at MGM we just had to downgrade it it was nice and fresh, so we had to take some of the doors off hinges and put some dust around and that sort of thing. As I recall, the look of it was quite splendid. So if you kind of squint at it and look at this set, you could see how it could be a Western set if it was dressed up that way. And I do think they did a good job of making the camp out of it here. So Lutzer, this Nazi war criminal, has came back to the scene of his crime, Dachau. So why does he come back? In his book, Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, Douglas Brody has a passage about this episode, which I think is very good. And he writes, Sailing refuses to supply a simple reason why Lutzer returns to the scene of his crimes. How easy would it have been to let us know that the man who calls himself Herr Schmidt happened to be passing on a train and hopped off for a quick look. That would have ruined the peace. The unanswerable mystery is why any criminal feels the need to return to the scene of any crime. However casual Lutzer may seem, he's haunted by guilt. He returns because he has to. I do like Brody's passage on the episode, but I find it hard to agree with the haunted by guilt aspect of it. When Lutzer arrives, he has this fierce grin on his face, like being there is exhilarating for him. He marches across the grounds of the camp, almost like a goose-stepping Nazi soldier, and again, 
he looks out across the land with a wicked grin on his face. He imagines the people hanging from the gallows, and he gives a subtle shrug as if to say, so what? So I think for him, it is in line with what he says a little later on, one longs for the good old days. All right, pigs, up. Time to greet the morning. On your feet, filth. We have a nice day ahead of us. It's snowing. Temperature is just slightly below zero. You will all assemble in the square. Undressed. We'll do some exercises. I and you. I and you. I and you. So for me, I feel that Lutzer, having gone into hiding under an assumed name, he's gone from a position of such power and standing that when he has to live this small life under the radar, it's a big come down for him. He wanted to come to Dachau to get the scent back. He wanted to walk into that dormitory and stand there, remembering when he had the power to make people do what he wanted, to strip them of their humanity and even their lives. He wanted to feel that power again, so he decided to take the risk. Now the real Otto Eichmann also went into hiding at the end of the Second World War, and I'll read a few passages from his Wikipedia entry throughout this. And the first one goes, At the end of the Second World War, Eichmann was captured by the Americans and spent time in several camps for SS officers using forged papers that identified him as Otto Eichmann. He escaped from a work detail when he realised that his actual identity had been discovered. He obtained new identity papers with the name of Otto Henninger and relocated frequently over the next several months. Moving to the Lumberg Heath, he initially got work in the forestry industry and later leased a small plot of land. Meanwhile, at the Nuremberg trials of major war criminals starting in 1946, damning evidence about Eichmann's activities was given by former commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Hoss, and others. In 1948, Eichmann obtained a landing permit for Argentina and false identification under the name of Ricardo Clement through an organisation directed by a bishop called Hudal, an Austrian cleric then residing in Italy with no Nazi sympathies. These documents enabled him in 1950 to obtain an international committee of the Red Cross humanitarian passport and the remaining entry permits that would allow emigration to Argentina. He travelled across Europe, staying in a series of monasteries that had been set up as safe houses. Departing via ship from Genoa on the 17th of June 1950, he arrived in Buenos Aires on the 14th of July. Eichmann initially lived in the Tucumán province where he worked for a government contractor. He sent for his family in 1952 and they moved to Buenos Aires. Eichmann held a series of low-paying jobs until finding employment at Mercedes-Benz where he rose to department head. The family built a house in Garibaldi Street and moved in during 1960. So our fictionalised Eichmann, Lutzer, 
soon realizes that he isn't alone at Dachau. Good afternoon, Captain, and welcome back. We've been waiting. That's right, Captain. We've been waiting for a long time. You're... you're Becker. Alfred Becker. I remember you. And well you should. How well you should, Captain Dutzer. This is where the actor, Oscar Bereggi, who's playing Lutzer, really starts to come into his own, I think. These initial scenes where he thinks that Becker is still alive and acting as caretaker, he has this kind of discomfort to him where he's trying to say, you know, the past is the past, these are happier times now. But he knows what he's done and he knows how Becker will feel about him. So I like how he squirms for a moment at least because now he's facing this man without the authority and the power he once had. This is like a school bully separated from his friends who kind of empower him to do the bad things that he does. Now we spoke a little about Oscar in the episode The Rip Van Winkle Caper and I can't really recall how much we went into his profile in that one because there were quite a few cast members in it. But like his co-star in this, he was born into acting and performing. He was born in Hungary in 1918 to a father who was an actor, and his father moved to America in 1939. But it took Oscar a few years to get his visa so that he could join him. But join him he did, and he worked as a salesman for a while until he learned the language, and then he returned to acting. So our two co-stars in this had actually been friends for years and their fathers actually knew each other. Bereggi himself had moved to America to escape the Nazis himself so there was a lot of connections here for these two actors to both each other and the source material. Now Bereggi has this very cold calculating menace to him. Although he's quite large in stature you can't imagine him actually laying his hands on someone you get the impression that he's above all that, although you can definitely see him ordering someone else to do it. And his presence, the big bulky man, works well with Schildkraut as the very thin and weak counterpart, so the two complement each other very well. Now what essentially follows is an extended sequence where Becker calmly, often poetically, unpicks any justification that Lutzer offers for what he's done. And there's a certain exchange in this that I like very much. It was not the wind. It was. It was. It was what, Captain? Stop calling me Captain. I'm not a soldier anymore. You never were a soldier. The uniform you wore cannot be stripped off. It was part of you. Part of your flesh, part of your body. It was a piece of your mind. A tattoo, Captain. A skull and crossbones burned into your soul. I was a soldier, Becker. No, Captain, you were a sadist. You were a monster who derived pleasure from giving pain. 
The reason I like it is that we know that Rod Serling was a soldier, and we know that he went into the Second World War with a certain amount of vigour. He was caught up in the kind of pageantry of it, but he came out quite a different man. The war did change him, and that vigour and enthusiasm for it had gone, but what remained was a deep respect for soldiers and their struggle their sacrifice. Sometimes only people who do a certain job, who experience certain things, can truly understand what other people do and that go through. And it does create a kind of fellowship. So even after the war, that fellowship and respect for other soldiers stayed with Rod Serling. So for a Nazi officer, an SS officer who stood and ordered the deaths of others, to call themselves a soldier and to use that as justification for their actions, I think would have been an insult to Rod Serling himself. So through Becker, he expertly picks that argument apart. So, like his Twilight Zone counterpart Lutzer, as I mentioned earlier, Otto Eichmann enjoyed a certain amount of freedom after the war under false names. But his freedom only lasted so long. This is a passage from that Wikipedia entry that I've referred to before on how he came to be captured. Several Jews and other survivors of the Holocaust dedicated themselves to finding Eichmann and other Nazis. Among them was the Nazi Jewish hunter Simon Weisenthal, and Weisenthal learned from a letter shown to him in 1953 that Eichmann had been seen in Buenos Aires, and he passed that information along to the Israeli consulate in Vienna in 1954. When Eichmann's father died in 1960, Weisenthal made arrangements for private detectives to photograph members of the family, as Eichmann's brother Otto was said to bear a strong family resemblance, and there were no current photos of the fugitive. He provided these photographs to Mossad agents on the 18th of February. Also instrumental in exposing Eichmann's identity was Lothar Herrmann, a half-Jewish German who had emigrated to Argentina in 1938. When in 1956 Herrmann's daughter Sylvia began dating a man named Klaus Eichmann, who boasted about his father's Nazi exploits, Herrmann alerted Fritz Bauer Prosecutor General of the State of Hesse in West Germany, Sylvia, sent on a fact-finding mission, was met at the door by Eichmann himself, who said he was Klaus's uncle. Informed that Klaus was not home, she sat down to wait. When Klaus returned, he addressed Eichmann as father. In 1957, Bauer passed along the information in person to Mossad director Issa Harrell, who assigned operatives to undertake surveillance, but no concrete evidence was initially found. On the 1st of March 1960, Harrell dispatched to Buenos Aires the Shin Bet chief interrogator, Z. Aroni, and I apologise, I'm probably getting all of these names wrong, but Aroni, over the course of weeks of investigation, was able to confirm the identity of the fugitive. As Argentina had a history of turning down extradition requests for Nazi criminals, Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion 
made the decision that Eichmann should be captured rather than extradited and brought to Israel for trial. Harel himself arrived in person in May 1960 to oversee the capture. Mossad operative Rafi Eichmann was named leader of the eight-man team, most of whom were Shin Bet agents. The team captured Eichmann near his home on Garibaldi Street in San Fernando, Buenos Aires, an industrial community 20 kilometers north of the center of Buenos Aires on 11th of May 1960. After observing the suspect's routine for many days, they determined that he arrived home by bus from work at around the same time every evening. They planned to seize him when he was walking beside an open field from the bus stop to his house. The plan was almost abandoned on the designated day when Eichmann was not present on the bus he usually took home. Finally, almost an hour late, Eichmann got off a bus. Mossad agent Peter Malkin engaged him, asking him in Spanish if he had a moment. Frightened, Eichmann attempted to leave, but two more Mossad men came to Malkin's aid. The three wrestled Eichmann to the ground, and after a struggle, conducted him to a car, where they hid him on the floor, under a blanket. I do find the stories of these manhunts quite fascinating, but... Remember that justification that Lutzer gave about just following orders? Well, I'm going to play you a segment of the Otto Eichmann trial that kind of illustrates that. You'll hear Eichmann speak in German, then an in-court interpreter translates for the courtroom, but then a female translator speaks over that in English. So there are probably several examples of Eichmann trying to pass the blame for what he's done upwards but there are reams and reams of footage of the trial out there and it would have took me days and days to go through it but I think you should get a flavour of what his defence is here I have one final comprehensive question to the accused Wussten Sie, dass wenigstens ein Teil dieser Menschen getötet wurde in den Lagern? Ich habe die Transporte befehlsgemäß durchführen müssen. Und ich habe auch gewusst, dass ein Teil dieser Menschen in den Lagern getötet wird. Das muss ich der Wahrheit gemäß bekennen. Erklären Sie dem Gericht, wie Sie jetzt zu der Frage der Schuld stehen. Mr. Witness, you said in the police interrogation that you carry a burden of guilt. Could you tell the court how you regard this question of the guilt now? Es sind in meinem Fall bis heute 16 bis 24 Jahre seit dem Geschehen vergangen. 
und vieles ehemals Gültige ist längst ungültig geworden. Und es ist heute eine sehr schwere Frage, die Frage über das Schuldgefühl und ich glaube, dass ich bei der Beantwortung hier wohl einen Unterschied machen muss zwischen einer rechtlichen Betrachtung und der Beleuchtung von der Seite der menschlichen Schuld. In my case, some 16 to 24 years elapsed since the, all, these, all this took place. That which existed at the time exists no longer. A lot of which existed at the time it does not hold true today. It is difficult to say in regard to the guilt and I must make a difference between the guilt from the legal approach and aspect and from the human approach or aspect. Eine politische Anordnung war, bin ich des Glaubens, dass die Schuld im rechtlichen Sinne hier doch eigentlich nur derjenige empfinden kann, der die Verantwortung für diese politische Entscheidung trägt bzw. getragen hat. Denn wo keine Verantwortung ist, da ist ja schließlich auch keine Schuld. Und das Ergebnis meines Nachdenkens ist daher, dass hier die Verantwortung im Rechtssinne zu prüfen, im Rechtssinne zu prüfen sei. Solange das menschliche Zusammenleben, so meine ich in politischer Hinsicht, noch keine globale Lösung gefunden hat, solange ist Befehl und Gehorsam die Grundlage jeder staatlichen Ordnung. Kein Staatswesen kann im Ernst auf Spione und Verräter aufgebaut sein. In connection with which I am called upon before this court is the part I took in the deportations. But these deportations at the time were an order given by the state, by the sovereign. And the guilt is to be borne by those who were responsible for this political decision. Where there is no responsibility, there can be no blame and no guilt. The responsibility must be examined from the legal approach. And as long as human beings go on living together in society, no global solution was found except the order of a state based on rules and orders and the abiding by these orders. A state cannot live only by spies and traitors. Zur höheren Sicherheit bedient sich nun die Staatsführung eines bindenden Mittels. 
nämlich des Eides. Die Verantwortung aber, das Gewissen, muss die Staatsspitze haben. Und es wurde uns ja dauernd gepredigt, in Wort und in Schrift, Vertrauen zur Führung. Bei einer guten Staatsführung hat der Untergebene Glück, bei einer schlechten Unglück. Ich hatte kein Glück. Denn das damalige Staatsoberhaupt gab den Befehl zur Vernichtung der Juden. Meine Mitwirkung an der Deportation ergab sich aus der Tatsache, dass der damalige höhere Gerichtsherr der SSE-Polizeigerichtsbarkeit, Himmler, die Deportationsbefehle an meinem Gerichtsherrn, dem Chef der Sicherheitspolizei am SSD, gab. Dieser beauftragte mit der Durchführung meinen ehemaligen Chef, SS-Gruppenführer und Generalleutnant der Polizei, Müller. Und von ihm erhielt ich sodann die Befehle, soweit ich zufolge des Geschäftsverteilungsplanes meines Referates dafür zuständig war. Die in order to increase the security of a state, the state finds a means to bind the individual. And this, these means is the swearing in of those individuals and making them take the oath. The responsibility, the question of conscience lies on the head of the state on the peak, on the sovereign. We must trust and be loyal to this sovereign. He who is lucky and has a good sovereign to lead him is lucky. But he who is unlucky, I had no luck. The head of my state ordered the deportations. And my part played in these deportations emanated from the master at the top, the head of the SS and the police. He was the man who passed on the orders to the head of the security police and the SD. And he, in turn, passed on these directions to Miller, the head of my office, who passed on the instructions to my department Listen to me, Becker. There's no more war. That's all in the past. There are no more camps. It's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous to dwell on these things. You did as you thought best, and I... I functioned as I was told. What is this noise? Strange that it should disturb you so it never used to, Captain. When your victims screamed, you weren't so sensitive. But now, they are not screaming. No, they're reacting. They just heard you offer the apology for all the monsters of our times. We did as we were told. We functioned as ordered. We merely carried out directives from our superiors. Familiar, is it, Captain? It was the Nazi theme music at Nuremberg. The new lyrics to the Götterdämmerung, the plaintive litany of the master race as it lay dying. We did not do, others did, or someone else did it. We never even knew that it was being done, or we did it, but others told us to. It's quite tricky to choose what clips to play from this episode because 
It is essentially just this big, long conversation between the two men. And when Becker speaks, he speaks this very sailing-esque dialogue, sailing at his dark and poetic best. And there's a line that he says when he's in disbelief at Lutzer, saying he thought people would have forgotten this little misunderstanding. And Becker says, Do not ask forgiveness from those whom you have destroyed to a point past forgiveness. I think that's a very important line and we'll come back to that later on. So the man delivering Sailing's words as Becker is Joseph Schildkraut. Although we haven't met Joseph Schildkraut before in the Twilight Zone, we have spoken of him because this Austrian-born actor who moved to Germany when he was four was originally lined up to play Romney Wordsworth in The Obsolete Man. But that of course ended up going to Burgess Meredith. The thinking at the time was that to cast an Austrian or German actor was a bit too on the nose and while there was a flavour of Nazi Germany about the whole thing, they didn't want it to be so specific in being a representation of that. So they wanted Wordsworth to be a bit more neutral. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. kind of documents this, and he says that Serling offered him a role as Rabbi Heller in the Playhouse 90 episode, In the Presence of Mine Enemies, which Schildkraut actually turned down. And I think that role went to Charles Lawton, and Serling said, Lawton, of course, did nothing to help us. How can you show a thin, shabby, and yet terribly human sensitivity of a rabbi in a gross fathead who eats six meals a day. And in a letter to Schildkraut on March 8th, Sailing apologised for not getting him a role in the Twilight Zone, explaining, I think you're one of the finest talents to come down the pike in the last 50 years. For you to do a show for me would be a unique honour, and it's to this end that I'll work. Although Schildkraut would appear in another Twilight Zone episode, The Trade-Ins, in 1962, this was actually sadly quite close to the end of his life. He died in 1964 at the age of 67. Like his co-star, acting was in Joseph's blood. He was performing on stage at the age of six with his father, the actor Rudolf Schildkraut, and he graduated from the Royal Academy of Music in Berlin, in 1911, and then his family moved to New York in 1912, where he studied at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Joseph and his family did eventually end up back in Germany when they were offered theatre work, and Joseph's reputation as an actor began to grow. So due to the timing of his career, when he did hit the screen, it was in silent movies where he had this very Valentino-esque matinee idol presence, and then he worked in television and film ever since. And perhaps fittingly for tonight's episode, one of his most famous roles was as the father of Anne Frank on stage in 1955, and then on screen in 1959. There is actually quite a sad story about Joseph when he filmed his second Twilight Zone episode, that I'll talk about when we get there. But how is he in this one? I think you can actually see how he would have been perfect to play 
Romney Wordsworth in The Obsolete Man. He presents himself in a very similar way to how Burgess Meredith does in that episode. That very mild-mannered intelligence and they are both men who have every right to be filled with anger but they project a kind of calm dignity instead. But now it's time for the tables to be turned and instead of Becca being judged, it's Lutzer who now is judged by those who he had previously decided whether they should live or die. So this is very reminiscent of Eichmann being taken to Israel to stand trial, so sailing is condensing it down into this Twilight Zone piece. We have something to accomplish here today. Accomplish? What? Your trial. It is time for your trial, Captain. The court is convening in compound six. The court? What is this nonsense? Is this a joke? No. No joke, Captain. Your trial. I think Don Medford really states that scene very well. You know, the faces of the men stood looking at Lutzer as he gradually starts to panic more and more. And he uses various effects to keep what could have been a very static scene moving and to show this escalating insanity in Lutzer until he blacks out. But when he does awake, there's time for one final twist when he remembers that actually he did kill Becker all those years ago. So this isn't a dream or a delusion and Becker isn't quite the caretaker that he thought he was. It may be an odd comparison to make, but just hear me out on this. You know, there are some stories like maybe Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol or Rod Serling's The Night of the Meek that are simple but very elegantly portray the magic of Christmas and the goodness that we all hope comes with it. They're not complicated or clever in some over-sophisticated way, but they are clever in their purity and their delivery of that message. So I think going in the complete opposite direction, Death's Head Revisited has that same simple, fabulistic quality. Put these two men in this place and let them have a conversation. But being the Twilight Zone, there is obviously more to it than that. Lutzer is Becker's killer, and now Becker gets to speak to him. But it boils this big situation down purely to its essence. No armies, no uniforms, no courtrooms, just a pure distillation of the aftermath of these atrocities. Both men are more than just characters, they are symbols from a bigger picture, and I think they're both wonderful at what they do here. And thinking back to what Buck Houghton said about Don Medford, I do think he does a very good job of creating movement in a script that essentially was just two men talking, and he keeps things very visually interesting and stops it from just being this static conversation. Take, for example, when Lutzer goes to strangle Becker, but then there's that quick cut, and he's outside again, grabbing on to the gallows pole. This is not just a great Twilight Zone, but it is an important Twilight Zone. Perhaps 
one of the most important. Some might call it preachy, but I don't. I think if there's ever something that has earned the right to have a preachy tone to it, it's this story. But I don't think it does. You know, it's heavy in the sense that this is such a, a serious topic and, and carries so much weight to it. But its purpose goes beyond just being there to entertain us. It's there to educate us too. You know, you do hear stories of Twilight Zones being played in classrooms. In fact, some people have written to me saying that that's what they do. They do that very thing. Well, I hope this one still gets played in classrooms because I think it needs to be. I mentioned earlier Douglas Brody and his book, Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone. And in it, he makes a very good observation. This is essentially a mirror universe or dark version of walking distance. Both Martin Sloan and Lutzer both long for the good old days. Sloan his idyllic childhood and Lutzer for a time when he was all-powerful and could decide who lived and died and take pleasure in the cruelty. Both of them want to walk around these places that for them hold memories that they are fond of. And both are confronted by important people from their pasts. Sloane, his father, and Lutzer is of course confronted by Becker. But while Martin Sloane gets a gentle slap on the wrist from the Twilight Zone in the form of his limp, Lutzer gets the full force of the Twilight Zone's particular brand of justice. Like Lancer in the episode Judgment Night, he isn't given the release of death, but Lutzer is driven mad and now is a prisoner in his own mind. Captain Lutzer? Captain Lutzer? You have been tried and found guilty of crimes against humanity. It is the unanimous judgment of this court that from this day on, you shall be rendered insane. So what happened to his real-world counterpart, Otto Eichmann? We convict the accused of a crime against the Jewish people and that during the period from August 19... He was found guilty of all 15 counts against him, responsible, the court said, for millions of deaths. The particulars of his rank and his job did not excuse his actions. And for the last time, he spoke to the court. I have listened to the severe judgment of the court and can see that my hopes for justice have not been realized. Therefore, I cannot recognize the verdict of guilty. I am convinced in the depths of my heart that I am being sentenced here for the deeds of others. The dispatch of each train by the accused to Auschwitz or to any other extermination site carrying 1,000 human beings meant that the accused was a direct accomplice to 1,000 premeditated acts of murder. And the degree of his legal and moral responsibility for these acts of murder is not one iota less. If we had found that the accused acted out of blind obedience, as he himself argued, we would still have said 
that a man who took part in crimes of such magnitude as these over several years must pay the maximum penalty known to the law. This court sentences Adolf Eichmann to death. So following that judgment, Eichmann's defense appealed the verdict, mostly relying on legal arguments about Israel's jurisdiction and the legality of the laws under which Eichmann was charged. Appeal hearings took place between 22nd and 29th of March 1962, and his wife Vera flew to Israel and saw him for the last time at the end of April. On the 29th of May, the Israeli Supreme Court rejected the appeal and upheld the district court judgment on all counts. Eichmann immediately petitioned the Israeli president for clemency, the content of his letter to the president pleading for pardon and other original court documents from the trial were made public on the 27th of January 2016. But there was no clemency for Eichmann, and his last meal was the usual prison fare of cheese, bread, olives and tea, along with half a bottle of wine. Eichmann was then hanged at prison, and the execution was attended by a small group of officials, four journalists, and the Canadian clergyman who had been his spiritual counsellor while in prison. Eichmann's last words were, Long live Germany, long live Argentina, long live Austria. These are the three countries with which I have been most connected and which I will not forget. I greet my wife, my family and my friends. I am ready, we'll meet again soon, as is the fate of all men. I die believing in God. The rights or wrongs of capital punishment are a discussion for another day, but it's interesting to note how the Twilight Zone deals with its own version of Eichmann. Because on occasion the Twilight Zone will pass a death sentence. The murderer Joe Caswell in the episode Execution ends up on the end of a rope for example. But the two Nazis we've met so far in the Twilight Zone, excluding the ridiculous Hitler appearance in Man in the Bottle, have both received justice that sees them kept alive or at least in some sort of limbo in the case of Lancer. Joe Caswell was a killer who dispensed death quickly at the other end of a gun or some other violent act. So the rights or wrongs of that are addressed to some degree in the episode. Caswell believed that he was born into that violent life and was doing what he needed to do to survive. And while he was a killer, he lived in a society that made it necessary, so there was blame on both sides, at least in his mind anyway. But of course, Death's Head Revisited is a completely different situation. There is no blame on both sides where Nazis are concerned. And when Becker says that Lutzer shouldn't ask forgiveness from those whom he's destroyed beyond forgiveness, I think this is also perhaps reflective of where Serling's line of diplomacy is. Because Rod Serling was very much about saying, yes, politically we have differences 
of opinion, but we have to keep talking to each other, discussing these points on which we differ. But the Nazis went beyond this point, into quite simply being evil. So Joe Caswell being strangled by that cord, his fate was as swift as the death he inflicted on others. And so too Lutz's fate mirrors the ongoing torture he inflicted on others as he descends into madness. Often because we read history in books, I think we do become detached from it in a way and it does become just like reading stories. But there are more horrific stories from the Holocaust than have been documented. There were millions of them. But the ones that get me the most are the ones like the man who stood at Eichmann's trial and told about the last time he saw his wife and daughter alive as he saw her red coat going into the crowd. And I think all we need to do is put ourselves in his shoes for a moment or her shoes and imagine our own loved ones to really bring home how horrible that situation was. So the importance of keeping the lessons of the Holocaust alive is why I think Rod Serling's very powerful closing narration is one of his best. But there's another reason too. For any people of faith out there who winced at the mention of God in Otto Eichmann's last words, I don't know whether this was a reaction to that from Rod Serling, but Serling doesn't mention that name lightly. And whether I or you have faith or not, I think it's better that it wasn't Otto Eichmann who had the last word on that, but Rod Serling. Why does it still stand? Why do we keep it standing? There is an answer to the doctor's question. All the Dachaus must remain standing. The Dachaus, the Belsons, the Buchenwalds, the Auschwitzes. All of them. They must remain standing because they are a monument to a moment in time when some men decided to turn the earth into a graveyard. Into it, they shoveled all of their reason, their logic, their knowledge, but worst of all, their conscience. And the moment we forget this, the moment we cease to be haunted by its remembrance, then we become the gravediggers. Something to dwell on and to remember. Not only in the twilight zone, but wherever men walk, God's earth. Okay, so... Seeing as we've had quite a run of interviews and extended episodes, we've got quite a bit of housekeeping to do because when I do those, I don't tend to do listener feedback or any other kind of things like that. So let's get started with that. Let's have a listen to some of your emails in submitted for your approval. Okay, first up is longtime friend of the show, Al, and he said, Hi Tom, 
I wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed your episode on the grave. This is one of my favourite episodes for precisely the reason you laid out. The atmosphere, the attitude, the acting. I don't agree with you, however, about the use of the wind at the end. This is a character study, and the wind is one of those characters. In fact, the only character that appears through the entire show. Actually, the wind and Pinto appear throughout the show, and both exert constant psychological influence on the other characters. That influence may unnerve Connie so much that he scares himself to death. Or perhaps the looseness of Pinto's grave and the wind's direction indicate that the conclusion is supernatural after all. I love the ambiguity of that, and I love that the non-corporeal characters figure so strongly in it. That's a good point, Al. You know, I, uh, I can see where you're coming from with that, that the wind was actually uh, such a strong thing in it that to have it play some way in the end in itself does actually fit. So good point. And he goes on to say, I always enjoy what you dig up in your research and this show shone with some great details. My favourite was the Lee Marvin on your roof anecdote, even as these stories of extreme drinking seem rather sad these days. I wasn't surprised to hear that Strother Martin joined in on one of these drinking fests because I met Strother Martin years ago in a bar. I was a college student involved in theatre and there was a hotel close to the theatre department that had a bar called the Stage Door. It was not necessarily the bar of choice for theatre students and was often quiet. I walked in one evening and there was Strother Martin all by himself at the bar. I recognised him but no one else in the bar seemed to. There weren't many people there in any event. I sat next to him and started a conversation. He was already pretty drunk, but we spent a couple of hours together. He was very bitter about the acting profession and told me not to get involved in theatre or movies in any way. I became a playwright anyway. As I recall, he was staying in the hotel and at some point excused himself and went to his room. He died a couple of months later. I wanted to also compliment you on the reading of It's a Good Life. I've read the story before, but have never been chilled the way your reading chilled me, particularly the use of Billy Moomy's voice in that crucial moment and the sound made by the creature that used to be Dan Hollis. It shocked me to realise that, if I listen correctly, Anthony is only three years old. One of the best things about the story is the subtle way in which Bixby provides information. It is completely different from the episode in which Rod lays it all out in his intro, but I think Rod was right in doing so for the television programme. Rod's instincts are usually right, I find. For example, with apologies to George Clayton Johnson, I think Rod's ending for a game of pool is the better one. Well, thank you, Alan. I'm glad you enjoyed that read, and I like doing that one. That was, that was a good one. I kind of put that one up there with the Howlin' Man, um, so I'm glad you enjoyed it. And he goes on to say, Finally, thanks for the interview with Amy Boyle Johnson. I enjoyed it, but I needed more context when talking about Ray Bradbury's charge of plagiarism. I've never heard of this before, and the interview seems to suppose that I have. I assume that Amy's book explores this, and I plan to read it, but it would have been nice to get more details on this beforehand. And then he finishes with, I'm impressed the way you've been juggling all your podcast balls, Tom. Looking forward to the look at the Rockney O'Bannon episode in the 80s Twilight Zone. The best writer for that series, in my opinion. Best. Al. 
and uh, he's look he's talking about the show I do on Patreon called Twilight Zone Aftermath, where I look at the 80s show. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a little bit. Uh, the plagiarism thing, I think it came up in the interview with Jason and Sonny Brock as well, because they cover it in the documentary. So we have spoken about it before, but that was a while ago now. But I'm glad you're going to read the book because you'll get the full sort of information on it there. So thanks, Al. Always good to hear from you. Okay, a quick email from David, and he says, Thanks for such a wonderful job with the podcast. I started listening about three months ago, and I finally nearly caught up. While I love listening about the actors and the backstory on these episodes, I was completely blown away by the unexpected addition of the UCLA tapes. I always knew Rod Sailing was brilliant, but what a decent and brave person he was, sticking up for equal rights at a time when doing so could get you killed. Listening to him warn about the political right was downright eerie given what we are facing right now in this country. And he was talking about Ronald Reagan, a guy most view now as a liberal Republican compared with our current administration. I want to thank you for bringing an entirely unexpected and thoroughly delightful dimension to a show I loved as a kid. Keep up the stellar work. We listeners appreciate it. Well, thank you, David. I, I appreciate that too. Um, you know, I, I love listening to Rod Sale and speaking about things. I think he is able to crystallize situations and his own views on them in such a unique and perfect way that you kind of listen to what he says and you think, of course, you know, even, even though often it mirrors what I myself believe, he just does it in such a way as to to really crystallize it in a way that I never could. But of course, that's that's why he is the man that he is and, you know, created the things he created. So thank you, David, appreciate that. Okay, another quick message from Ardella. I don't, I don't tend to read out messages where someone just says, you know, good work on the show kind of thing. Uh, I read the ones where people are talking about the episodes more, uh, but I'll, I'll just respond to anyone who who kind of sends me a, a good work email by another email. But uh, Ardella just sent a quick one, so I'll just read it. And she says, I enjoy your shows very much. I especially like when you read the short stories. Your voice has an otherworldly quality to it that is perfect for the Twilight Zone. Keep up the great work, Ardella in Ohio. Well, I hope that's not Peaksville, Ohio, Ardella. Okay, well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And... Next up, we have an email from Terry, and he says, I've been a Twilight Zone viewer since childhood, and I've always loved Sailing's sense of wonder and his genuinely eerie and imaginative dislocations of time and space and psyche. As I've grown older, my admiration for Sailing's literary ability has only increased. His Twilight Zone stories are full of humanity, and many speak out, passionately for justice for the outcast and oppressed. That is why I've always loved Night of the Meek, the perfect blend of the Christmas spirit and the mysterious twists and turns of the Twilight Zone. Other than Dickens' masterpiece, Sailing Story is my favourite Christmas story of all. So today I found your podcast for the first time and I've just listened to Night of the Meek. You've created such a sensitive and thoughtful piece on one of my favourite stories of all, 
and you got so many of the details and nuances exactly right. I'm really grateful for your generosity of spirit, both in your heartening reflections on the Christmas spirit and in using your role as critic and commentator to uplift the most meaningful parts of Night of the Meek, rather than constantly finding fault. Your genuine love for Sailing's story and Art Carney's acting really shines through. Your podcast was insightful, but many critical essays on the Twilight Zone are insightful, yet still fall short or miss the point. You were more than insightful. You also attempted to capture the very heart and soul of Sailing's message. In a world of caustic critics, you expressed reverence for this story. I greatly, greatly appreciate your work and intend to listen to many of your podcasts in the near future. And that is from Terry. Well, what a lovely message that was. Thank you, Terry. I, You see, the thing about the Twilight Zone for me is, and, and I'm not pointing the finger at any critics, how they should or shouldn't do things. This is purely how I prefer to approach things because you can probably look back at some of the Twilight Zone episodes and say, well, the story doesn't make sense because of X, Y, and Z, or why would the character do that kind of thing? Why would they do that? And it doesn't tend to be how I approach it because I feel that often they are very sort of fabulistic stories and as long as they they get their message across and they create that wonderful Twilight Zone atmosphere that we all love, I'm not really about trying to destroy the magic of them uh, through criticism. And, and I'm glad you've picked up on that because I think, especially when we are looking at older entertainment where maybe they didn't really have such a volume of criticism about them the, the way we do now there are things maybe you can look back on and say well it doesn't really work now but i'm not about going back and, and trying to destroy the magic of something that i love so much and although i am critical of some twilight zone episodes i mean a thing about machines comes to mind i was very critical about that one and a few others and generally I might point out a few bits and pieces that don't work in some episodes. I think I'm more about trying to maintain the magic of the Twilight Zone than to try and destroy it by saying, well, this thing doesn't work or that thing doesn't work anymore. You know, that's, that's a personal thing. I guess there is room for all kinds of different ways of approaching this, but for me, it has always been about trying to bring that magic on if it's still there and, and I think for the most part it is so I'm glad you've picked up on that Terry I appreciate it okay another quick one from Chris and it's cool we're getting all these new names coming through people who we've not spoken to before and he says hi Tom thanks for some great podcasts your effort and reasoned consideration of the Twilight Zone are most welcome my favorite way to enjoy the TV series is to put an episode on on a dark cold night and be transported to a place where the story could happen albeit with little suspension of disbelief the thing that always impresses me is the tightness and skill evident in a lot of the episodes i timed alone yesterday and from the end of the opening titles to the beginning of the closing titles it took 23 minutes and 30 seconds to tell that story I think when we consider that, we can only marvel at the skill of the team 
that was able to create something that can move us both emotionally and intellectually in such a short time. I find myself thinking and talking about episodes for quite a while after watching them. Thanks, Chris. Very good point, you know, what can we do these days in 23 minutes? Most television seems to be, unless it's a half hour sitcom, as Arlen Schumer said, uh, an hour long these days. We, we need that level of, we need that space of time to really get a story across now. But Rod Sailing, kind of like the episode we talked about tonight, he seemed to be able to distill what he really needed to get across to the audience into quite a pure form. So uh, good observation. Thank you, Chris. Okay, couple more. We have Michael and he writes... Thank you so much for the extra time and effort you put into your latest podcast on It's a Good Life. I enjoyed it as I have all your instalments. I couldn't help wondering if you have any thoughts about the 1986 episode, The Toys of Caliban, where a child has similar powers, but with a limiting mental handicap. I think it's one of the more memorable episodes from that series and doesn't offer a hopeful ending either. Well, that's very interesting, Michael. I, I'll be honest with you, I, I can't remember it. If I've ever watched it, I've completely forgotten it. And there are some episodes of the 80s show that I haven't seen, so that very well may be one of them. But um, I will get to it because I'll talk about this in a minute, the, the show I do on Patreon called Twilight Zone Aftermath. So I will get to it someday, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to catch up on that. So thank you for your kind words, Michael. Okay, long-time friend of the show, Anne, wrote in and she says, Hi Tom, I just listened to the podcast about It's a Good Life, as always, lots to think about, and I appreciate you including the other TV and radio versions, which I've never heard of. You talked about some of the metaphors the show presents, such as permissive parenting and even Anthony representing God. But there's another interpretation, and it's not my own. In his book, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, I think that's how you say it, uh, Juno Diaz compares the dictatorship of Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic to its good life. Trujillo was a fascist so brutal and capricious that he tortured and murdered anyone who opposed him. He seemed to be so all-powerful that the more superstitious citizens believed him to be omnipotent, and people were terrified to say anything negative about him. In reality, he had spies everywhere, and people would turn in their own friends and family to protect themselves. I don't know the intentions of the original author, but obviously Rod Serling was painfully aware of fascism in Europe, and Trujillo was assassinated in 1961, just five months before It's a Good Life aired for the first time. Again, I have no idea if it was intended to be an allegory for fascism, but it certainly fits, and the unsettling ending could have been meant as a warning for the future. Again, thanks always for the excellent podcast, and Well, thank you, Anne. And you could be absolutely right, it definitely seems to be in Rod Serling's ballpark, and he seemed to be a sponge who would soak up whatever was going on around him and then put it into these fabulistic episodes so absolutely i think it's a very valid observation so thank you for writing in and thank you for your support as well you've been a, a long time supporter of the show and i appreciate it 
Okay, one final email and it is from another gentleman called Tom and he says, Hey Tom, I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now. I just finished the latest episode on It's a Good Life and feel the need to let you know how much your show means to me. I'm 32 and as I'm sure is the case with many other people my age, I was first exposed to The Zone in reruns and New Year's Eve and 4th of July specials growing up. For as long as I remember, it's been one of my all-time favourite things and I'm always so grateful that those stories and particularly Rod Serling's unbelievable decency and humanity reached me at a young age when they could have maximum penetration of my psyche. Because the show is so special to me, I tried to limit myself to only watching it during the New Year's Eve marathons. I don't ever want any of those stories to wear off or in any way become anything other than the precious gems they are. There's something about associating the show with the dead of winter, the holidays and the state of mind looking back on the previous year while looking ahead to the next. It's a very Twilight Zone state of mind. I lack the articulation to express how much I love your show and how much it means to me. It's so so great to be able to have a companion podcast and deep dives into every element of the episodes, the stories themselves, how they were birthed into the world and the people who are responsible for creating them, technical details, all of it. But it's not just the joy coming from having a little 21st century piece of the zone, it's how you put the show together. The first episode I listened to was The Odyssey of Flight 33. Having no idea what was in store for me, I laid in the dark, pressed play, and will never forget how incredibly creeped out I was by your story about the ghost flight with everyone inside unconscious. I will always remember it because it was simply spooky. The production of the show and the way you told the story felt like the Twilight Zone. I don't know how to describe it, just like when I'm watching the show proper and it feels like going to a special place. Your show makes me feel that same way. In the same way that I could never explain exactly what makes the Twilight Zone the Twilight Zone, the way it's more than the sum of its parts, I can't explain how you've tapped into and captured that same ethereal, timeless energy. I'm not just listening to someone talk about the Twilight Zone, I'm back in the Twilight Zone. I will treasure every episode of your show for the rest of my life just as I do the episodes themselves. Thank you from the bottom of my heart and know that every ounce of care and work you pour into these episodes is appreciated. My eternal gratitude, Tom. Well, Tom, I was very touched reading your email. Absolutely. You know, I created the show with a certain feeling in mind and to hear that people tap into that the way you have and the way you feel about it, you know, I'm, I'm deeply honored by that. And I really do appreciate you getting in touch. And when people like you and others have said it before, say that it, it gives them that Twilight Zone feel and when they listen to it, you know, what greater honor is there than that? You know, I can't really ask for more. So thank you, Tom. You know, I appreciate you writing in and I'm glad to have you on board as a listener. So that is our emails today. The decks are clear. We've got a blank canvas to work on and work on it. We will. Just a couple of things of note before I go. 
If you want to join me on Facebook, the address is facebook.com slash Twilight Zone Podcast. I'm not a huge kind of social media person, but it's there, you know, I post the episodes on it, occasionally have a little conversation on there, but by all means, come and join me. And likewise, on Twitter, I, I do have the occasional conversation with people on there too. The address is Twilight Zone Net on Twitter. And then for those who want to support the podcast in some way, then there is the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Twilight Zone Podcast. And it's been going for a few months now, and I'm very grateful for everyone who's jumped on board. I've kind of rejigged the content a little recently based on what I think worked and what didn't work. I used to do a show on it called Fifth Dimension Radio, which I felt I could put my efforts to better use in different ways. So now there's only, there's two contribution levels on there mainly. There's a $1 contribution level. uh, And for that, you get a short story reading every month in the vein of the way I will read Twilight Zone stories sometimes. And those short story readings tend to be from the time of the Twilight Zone, so kind of science fiction type stories from that era. I'm actually doing a longer one at the moment, the original Planets of the Apes story, which has taken a bit longer than I thought. But we'll get back to that short story format soon. And then there is the $2 donation level, which I'm quite excited about at the minute because I started to do a show called... Twilight Zone Aftermath, where I examined the 80s Twilight Zone and then subsequently the 2000s Twilight Zone, maybe even Night Gallery one day, but we'll see. But in that show, it's a kind of solo show where I just turn on the mic after I've watched the episode and, and put my thoughts on it. And what I was finding was, you know, it's fine and and I like doing it, but what I was finding was that, you know, it's okay, I, I'll sort of put the mic on and put my thoughts on there but what we have with the original twilight zone there's a there's a wealth of material i can draw on books and stuff on the internet the social things that were going on at the time to really add texture to that show you know i can put all of this in to to kind of create a bit of a different product hopefully with a twilight zone flavor So there's all those things to draw on. But with the 80s show, there's no real companion to it telling us about the making of it. The creators are a lot broader. There's a lot of different people doing it. I can't really talk about the the themes that certain writers bring to it in the same way. So I was finding it a bit sort of... It was only ever designed to be quite a short thing, you know, 15-minute little examinations of the story, what I think worked, what I think didn't and in that way it's fine but but if you ever remember back to one of the shows that I did with Luke I think it was the first season wrap-up show when he was actually the host of the Twilight Zone podcast I said on it you know if I ever cover the 80s Twilight Zone then I will change the format to be a discussion show and I think that actually makes a bit more sense for Twilight Zone Aftermath because A couple of different opinions, you know, bouncing off each other, I think will make for a much more enjoyable product, you know. For the original Twilight Zone, I'm happy with the format I have. 
for this show. But for Twilight Zone Aftermath, I think that conversational format will be a lot better. So what I'm doing with that is the $2 patrons who get that show, or any of the patrons really, I'm throwing out a kind of invitation to come and join me on Twilight Zone Aftermath. And we will talk through an episode of the 80s Twilight Zone. We will plan it in advance. We can do it via Skype or whatever. And we will have that conversational format podcast, but it's going to be with listeners to the show. You know, you don't have to be a podcaster to do it as long as you can speak to me in a a decent quality format via Skype or something. And I will record it and put a show together. Then anyone can do it. And... So that's what I've decided to do. I'm quite excited about it. I think it'll be a different flavour of podcast to this one, which is what it needs. And I get to talk to people who support me, who support the show by throwing in a a dollar or two a month to to help towards the host and and that kind of thing. So I'm really looking forward to changing direction with that one and getting to speak to the people who've supported me for all these years and who are supporting me now on patreon so if you want to join the ranks of the people on patreon then and get that show twilight zone aftermath then please do it's patreon.com slash twilight zone podcast so as i said the decks are now clear and we can move on and start to look at more twilight zone episodes so here's rod sailing to tell us what's up next and now mr serling Next week, we see what will happen to a world that, with each passing hour, draws closer and closer to the sun. This is a nightmare in depth, in which we watch two doomed women spend their last hours struggling for survival against a fiery orb that moves over the top of a hot, still, deserted city. We call it the Midnight Sun, and we also recommend it most heartily. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations. <laughs> 